Listening to the Pre-Med Perspectives Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Pre-Med Perspectives. Um, it's Vigi here, and I'm joined by um, an Instagram and TikTok famous superstar. Um, her name is Kelly. Um, you might have seen her by her handle at Kelly Takes Medicine. I know Kelly has popped up all over my For You page in the last few weeks, so I wanted to reach out to her because she has a lot of interesting content and things to say about her journey in medicine. And so I'm really excited to um, talk to her today and learn um, a lot from her. So with that, Kelly, um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I don't know if I'm in like famous, I would say, <laughs> but I am flattered by your compliments. I'm glad that I was able to reach, you know, people like you. But I am a fourth year medical student. I go to an MD program in Virginia. I'm actually originally from Anaheim, California, which is where Disneyland is, if you don't know where that is. <laughs> And I went to UC Irvine, graduated with a bio major, and then took like two gap years before going to medical school. I, I am the first in my family to graduate from college and of course go to medical school and become a doctor. So I'm super excited because I graduate this year. <laughs> and in terms of specialty, I'm currently applying to internal medicine and primary care. I have an interest in geriatrics, which is the specialty, subspecialty of caring for older adults. And I'm also part of the National Health Service Corps, so happy to talk more about that as well. Yeah, Kelly, thank you um, so much for that introduction. I think there's a really a lot of cool um, things to talk about with your journey. So um, kind of um, going a little further back in your journey in undergrad, um, can you tell us a little bit about your undergrad experience? What did you major in? Like, did you know you wanted to go into medicine or was that something you kind of fell into? Um, let's, you know, let's start there. Yeah, sure. So I think, so deep down, I was always interested in medicine because a fun fact about me is that I was actually raised by my grandparents since I was born and I was not raised by my parents. So have, having such a close relationship with my grandparents, especially my grandpa, because he struggled with his health. And my grandpa didn't speak English. So I was the one going with him to his appointments and translating. And that that was sort of my exposure to medicine. But because my I don't really come from an educated family, like, obviously, as a first gen, there's, there are a lot of barriers, and we don't have the same mentorship or resources as other people. And so I was always afraid to pursue med medicine because I heard all these scary stories. But so I came into uh, undergrad as a bio major. And then I thought, so I was pretty much pre-farm for like almost the entire year or all my years of undergrad until two months before graduating. It's a funny story. I asked my clinical, the geriatric clinical pharmacist I was shadowing. Uh, for a letter of rec for pharmacy school. And I had worked on my personal statement and everything. 
And then she kind of just stopped me because she didn't know if I was actually interested in pharmacy or geriatrics. And she was like, hey, like, I think you should consider applying to medical school because you're so passionate about geriatrics at like such a young age. And so that's how I ended up in, in medicine. Like I kind of, she was the one like pushed me and kind of gave me a little bit of courage to actually apply to medical school. So that's actually the reason why I took two gap years. So I think, I think one of the struggles of being first gen is that you just don't, you kind of feel a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, and obviously I can only speak for myself and other first gens, but I feel like compared to other people, it's, you just don't think you can do it. And then like, once you make it there, like even in med school, I still feel like I don't belong all the time. <laughs> mm, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people who, you know, are in a similar position can relate to that, you know, when especially not having access to as many resources or just knowledge about the field, it can be really um, scary. And that's, you know, part of the reason why we wanted to do this podcast to really get that information out there um, to people. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. I think it's really interesting that you were, you know, in that process of applying to pharmacy school and then, you know, switched and was able to now, you know, almost graduating from med school. So um, great to hear that. Um, and so in medical school, or I guess I should ask, so now like how did kind of the MCAT fit into that? Um, you know, is that kind of what you did during your gap year? Just, you know, a little bit about that transition. Yeah, so I graduated and then I took the summer off and then I signed up for like, a, I had a discount for a Princeton review course that I took from like October to January of the next year to prep for the MCAT. And so towards the end of that period, I was actually going through like, like we had a death in the family in the household. And so that was tough in terms of deciding whether or not I was going to retake the MCAT or delay it. I ended up just taking it anyway. And so I actually did do too hot on the MCAT. I mean, it's still like above the like average of 500 or whatever it is these days, but like it wasn't good enough for, for like, you know, MD programs. And so I just decided that since um, I, I'm not afraid to share my score, I, I got a 507. And so it's like kind of a borderline where I wasn't sure if I should retake it or not. And so I actually applied to majority of DO schools because I knew I wanted to do primary care anyway. So I applied to both MD and DO schools. And so I think if you only want to go to an MD program, then, then maybe if you were me, you would retake it. But um, I think the MCAT itself, like a lot of people don't believe me when I say this, but I've taken like two board exams already, right? In medical school. and countless exams in med school for class. And I still feel like the MCAT is probably the hardest exam that out of all of them. Um, and so that's why I always tell, you know, my mentees or other pre-meds that the MCAT is just a poor measure of, you know, your character and all the other qualities that it'll take for you to become a good doctor. It's honestly just like a means to an end. And it's kind of like, a sense in a sense a rite of passage and not necessarily something that's going to define you and you know I know tons of people who have retaken it like it's it's so common to retake the MCAT now and so that's why I feel like you know if people do bad on the MCAT like they shouldn't feel discouraged because 
you know, you just kind of have to reflect, assess, you know, why you didn't do well, like change up your strategies, like, and then kind of go from there. I hope that was helpful. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that was helpful, especially, um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there, like, you know, struggling with the MCAT. I think that's always a big barrier. So um, it's, you know, great to hear from someone who's like, you know, almost at the end of that medical school um, journey that, you know, you felt the MCAT was harder than some of the exams that you've had to take. So definitely, I think that is um, reassuring that, you know, once you're able to cross that barrier that um, it's not always worse. <laughs> I'm sure some people may think it is, but at least, you know, it is reassuring to hear that, um, you know, that is a significant barrier, but that you are able to cross it and that um, it can get better. Um, with that, I wanted to ask, so do you currently go to an osteopathic medical school or do you um, attend an allopathic medical school? Yeah, I attend an allopathic medical school in Virginia. And is there like any reason that you kind of specifically picked like an allopathic school versus an osteopathic school? Um, was it just kind of more based on like that was the place that ended up working out best or, you know, did you feel um, mm -hmm. or is there any yeah. other factor that kind of went into that decision? Right. Um, so the only MD program I was accepted to was in Virginia. And so I had, I, I'm from California, so I had other options, but honestly, the main reason was because of logistics. I just felt like I know that is different now with the change in, you know, pass fail. And, but I felt like logistically at the time I was thinking, do I really want to study for two board exams? Because you would need to take like, you know, that the U assembly and the complex. And, and I just felt like that would be overwhelming for me. And like mentally, I just didn't know if I want to go through that because I'm, I just know I was terrified of step one. Like I didn't know that it was manageable. And I, I thought that step one was going to be like the MCAT and I was like so traumatized. So I think just for logistic reasons, I chose um, the allopathic school. And then another thing was that the program is, is actually, I really love the program because um, one of the reasons why I applied to it was because it has an underserved track, which I'm a part of because I knew I wanted to do primary care and specifically to serve like under-resourced communities. And then they also have a geriatrics curriculum incorporated longitudinally. So throughout your four years, you are taught like concepts of geriatric medicine. And as someone who's interested in geriatrics, that's actually what also what drew me to apply. And then, so I, I'm, I'm like pretty happy with it, even though I was homesick for a little bit, but yeah. Okay, yeah, you know, thank you for sharing that and, you know, kind of the decision process that you went through. So, um, no, I know you've mentioned a couple times that you are interested in primary care and specifically, um, you know, geriatric medicine. So, um, kind of what really is motivating that interest? I feel like, obviously, there's a big shortage of primary care physicians out there, and I feel like not as many people are going into primary care. So, it's great to hear that you, know, you are interested in that field. So, really, you know, what was that, like, primary motivating factor? Yeah, I love primary care. And, and just for everyone listening, primary care is actually not only family medicine. It also includes like pediatrics, OBGYN, psychiatry, and internal medicine. And it's confusing because for internal medicine, you can, there are multiple routes that you can take. So I'm applying to internal medicine. And a lot of people who go into internal will subspecialize in 
things like cardiology or endocrinology, you know, GI, and then another subset of people will just practice in the hospital and they're called hospitalists. And then there's like a third route, which is route I'm taking where you can go into primary care. And I think the only subspecialty of internal medicine that would still be considered primary care is geriatrics. And so geriatrics just focus specifically on the healthcare of older people, like above 65. And I got into, I was interested in geriatrics, of course, again, because of my grandpa just being his healthcare advocate. Um, and then also because of my culture and the, the ageism that's so prevalent in America. And, you know, like for, for, for Asian cultures, like the way we perceive, you know, older people, we kind of see them as, you know, elders with wisdom and respect and they're associated with status. And then, you know, coming here, my grandparents as immigrants, that was such a like culture shock for them. And then they kind of started believing, you know, in America's perception of older people and like just feeling like they were not important and weak and just so neglected. And like, we were very frustrated with you know, the doctors, because back then there weren't as many like interpreter services as there are now. And it's pretty advanced now, but back then I had to be the interpreter and there was, there was just a lot of like disparities between, you know, being a non-English immigrant in America's healthcare system versus being, you know, your, your typical like white patient in a healthcare system. And so that's sort of what drew me to primary care as well, because, my grandpa didn't have a great PCP and it, it, yeah, we just never found a PCP who could actually speak the same language as us. And so, so kind of all these factors led me to pursue primary care. I think um, what also helped was just shadowing as much as I could before medical school. And you can even do this during the first years of medical school, but exposure, just getting as much exposure is really important in terms of figuring out okay, do I want to go into primary care or do I, do I see myself in maybe surgery or like emergency medicine where everything's fast paced and, you know, there's less of that continuity of care long-term. Um, so like, these are big questions that will, will help you decide whether or not you want to go into primary care. And, and like I said, primary care is broad. It's not just like family medicine. Like that's what most people think of when they think of primary care. And so, so that's kind of how I landed in primary care. I think, um, I think it's probably the most underappreciated, you know, field of medicine. And obviously there are a lot of barriers to pursuing primary care for, for medical students. Did I answer all your question, your whole question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, thank you for, you know, sharing all of that. And I think that is really interesting that you, you know, brought up your um, culture, how it focuses a lot on um, respecting and caring for elders. I do think a lot of, um, you know, Asian um, cultures do have that focus where, you know, elders are seen as wise and um, really the younger generations will take care of elders. But definitely in America, you see a little bit more of the, that ageism and more discrimination against um, the elderly. So I think that was a really interesting um, thing that you brought up and how that really motivated the way that, um, you know, you saw the elderly, elderly and, you know, wanted to care for that population. Um, Kind of moving forward, I know you touched on that you are a member of the National Health Service Corps and you even have, you know, a scholarship through that. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about this? Because I know scholarships in medicine are not really common things. So I think that is something really interesting and cool. 
I would be happy to talk about it. <laughs> so the Natural Health Service Corps is, I would say, one of the two like best scholarship programs. Because the other one is the Health Service Professions, I think HSPS or something. Um, that one's like the Army, Navy, where you you know you serve in the in you know the, an armed uh, service, and then they will pay for however amount that you served for your, like your medical school. So very similar, but the one that I'm part of, um, it's called the National Service Corps. There's two different programs. One is a scholarship program, which is the one I'm part of, and then there's like a loan repayment one. And so the purpose of the scholarship is to actually increase the number of you know PCPs, especially in underserved areas. And so if you are interested in any of the primary care disciplines that I mentioned earlier, it is a great option. And it was created to try to alleviate that financial burden of being in primary care because like ballpark in terms of how much you make in primary care, they're like the lowest paying specialty. And of course, it's not the training is not as long as say for surgery, uh, surgeries or surgeons, sorry, um, or just surgical specialties. But like you still, so primary care, you know, has been shown to improve patient outcomes long term. Like preventative care would save our country, you know, so much money. And so like that's why there's always like a push for primary care physicians to get paid more because you know, in theory, they would you know help us not just save you know, money for us, our country, but also like improve outcomes for patients. Um, and so the scholarship will pay for your tuition. I also get a monthly stipend and I get like an annual lump sum of money to help pay for like educational expenses and things like that. And it's actually a significant chunk of money. Like I, you know, it pays for my tuition, like $55,000 a year for tuition. Each month I get like 1400 to help pay for living expenses, which is huge, especially if you are from, you know, like a, if you're first gen or, you know, they actually do take that into consideration. Um, so the scholarship is, is really meant for those people who, you know, come from a disadvantaged group uh, or they are interested in primary care and, and, and practicing in underserved areas. So after, residency, you have to serve in an underserved area for however number of scholarship support that you received. So for me, I signed a three-year contract. I got three years of med school paid for. And then after I'm done with residency, I'll be completing my service and then I can just do whatever I want. That is really um, a great opportunity that you have there. So I think that's really awesome that um they're able to cover your tuition and living expenses for three years because that is saving you just crazy amounts of money. And um, I think that's a really interesting way to um, kind of help, um, I guess, increase interest in primary care, because like you said, that's, you know, it is, has the lowest salaries in medicine, um, which is why I think some people are, you know, not drawn to that field. So I think um, that is a really cool opportunity that, you know, the scholarship which is again, the National Health Service Corps, you know, really helps to alleviate some of that financial burden and really help promote that interest in primary care, which like you said, is perhaps one of the most important fields in medicine, especially again, everything you said about um, preventative care, preventing, um, you know, down the line, uh, worse problems, you know, focusing on primary prevention as opposed to tertiary prevention. And so um, that is honestly 
I'm, you know, congratulations that you're able to receive that scholarship. And I think that is really cool opportunity. So um, in case like people are interested in that, you know, you know, how was, did you have to apply for this? Was it like a really competitive process? Like talk a little bit more about that, you know, procedure. Yeah, so this is actually perfect timing because the application opens sometime around March or April, and then it actually only stays open for a month. So, so I would actually recommend, you know, looking up the application process and then looking at the essay questions. They're usually the same every year. But what I did is I started like preparing around, you know, February, March, and then I was, you know, writing the, you kind of treat the questions like it's a personal statement. And so there's letters of recommendation involved. So make sure you get those, especially from people who are familiar with your work. And the scholarship is, I would say it's pretty competitive. I think only eight to 10% every year of applicants that are accepted. And so there's only like 200 each year. And so um, it's pretty competitive. And I think part of the reason is because, uh, I don't know if it's because it's competitive or it's because the applicants are applying without a strong, true interest in primary care and, and working with underserved areas. Because there are a lot of people who apply just for the benefit and then they later they change their mind or, you know, they're not applying for like the right reasons and, and also the scholarship does prefer um, like disadvantaged applicants. Um, um, so I think those are some of like the selection criteria, but um, you also need to have like decent standing in medical school or prior to like in college. Um, that's part of the, the selection criteria. Um, and then I'm trying to think what else. Um, I think those were the two big struggles were the letters and then the essays. Um, and then you don't hear back until like five, six months later after you submit. Um, so, so that's kind of like the application process. It's pretty short window. Uh, I don't think it's first come first serve or anything, but I think it just I think the main advice I would give people is that um, like try to apply with with um, keep in mind like what they're looking for like they're looking for people with experience in primary care and experience serving medically underserved uh, communities and it, and then plus or minus, it's not like a must because I know people who have gotten it without coming from a disadvantaged background. But if this, if that, if you have that background, you know, I, I would encourage you to apply. Um, yeah, hopefully that helps. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure that is helpful, especially um, since that application is opening up, you know, like you said, pretty soon. So um, definitely something that, you know, people should look into if they are, you know, have that genuine interest in primary care. Um, the last thing that I wanted to touch on with you today is, so I know you're in the process of applying to residency, which is like always stressful. Like I, I'm still a few years away, but so it's out of sight for me, but um, for someone like you who is going through that process, you know, what was that like this year, you know, in this weird hybrid, half virtual, half in-person setting? Like, what was that like for you? Did you have mostly interviews like in person, virtual, um, just kind of any reflections you've had on your application process this year? Yeah, so interviews were actually all virtual. It will depend on the specialty, but for internal medicine, it was all virtual. Uh, and it, there's pros and cons. The pro is obviously you don't have to spend money to fly everywhere, and it's just a lot easier. And then the cons is 
obviously you can't get a feel of the program and the culture um, because you're not there in person. And I think, I think that's what's made making the rank list hard. And so I, I, I don't know. I think overall though, compared to the medical school application process, it's definitely less stressful because the ranking algorithm is based on the applicant's preferences. So, you know, as I'm making my rank list, like the, I have to just rank it based on what, where I want to go, not where I think I'll get in. And so I think, <laughs> yeah, so it's been hard. I'm trying to just, I'm still working on my rank list, trying to decide. And, and um, so if you're, li- if you're, you know, listening and you're not familiar with the ranking process, you basically interview, you have to rank programs like one through whatever, and then the computer kind of matches you to your highest ranked choice. Um, uh, and, you know, other schools have to rank you high enough for you to match there too. Um, but overall, I think it's been, it's been eye-opening for a lot of reasons because I didn't realize that I had not met a first-gen physician before until the interview trail. And I just thought like how crazy that was because I just never thought about it. Like never really met a doctor who was, you know, a child of immigrants or like a first generation college graduate. Uh, I meet a lot of people who are first gen physicians, like, you know, they're the first doctor in their family, but I never really meet people who are, you know, first in their family to go to college and then make it to becoming like an attending physician. (laughs) And so that was like the biggest thing. I think, yeah, overall, just so grateful to be here and have made it this far. Um, zero regrets. So I, I enjoyed med school a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Well, um, obviously, good luck with your, um, you know, rank, you know, figuring out all your rankings and things like that. I know that must be kind of difficult to have to pick and decide everything. But, um, you know, best of luck for the match. I'm sure you will uh, match um, somewhere awesome. Hopefully your number one choice. And um, again, I wanted to thank you for joining us today. But the last thing I want to ask before we kind of log off is just if you had, you know, one major piece of advice, your biggest tip for listeners out there, you know, what would that have to be? I would say, I would say don't let fear like, like dictate your future. I think just try to allow your passion to guide you and you, and then learn to overcome the fear because I let fear, you know, get in the way of pursuing medicine earlier, becoming a physician. And, uh, and, you know, that's why I do what I do is because I just really want to empower people and you don't even have to be first gen. Like you can still be afraid to pursue medicine. Um, but if you have a passion for it, like that's half the battle. Like there are so many people out there who are pursuing medicine for the wrong reasons, you know, either for money or prestige or status. And, you know, those people, what, what I've seen so far is that those people tend to burn out quicker and they just don't have that drive and passion to, to stay in medicine. And so that would be my biggest advice. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is really important. Obviously, like we're all afraid of, you know, failure, just that something's just not going to go right, or it's going to be too hard. But, you know, obviously, if you do have that passion, you know, go for it, because obviously, you know, it does work out sometimes. So I'm glad that um, you shared that. And again, Kelly, thanks for um, taking time out of your day to join me. Uh, it was really great hearing about 
um, your journey into medicine, you know, your interest in primary care, the scholarship that you are a recipient of, and just, you know, some reflections on your residency application process. So um, with that, again, um, best of luck with the match. I'm sure it'll go awesome for you. And um, thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me.